Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to join us as we continue our study of God's Word. On today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is looking at a special Palm Sunday message. It's entitled, The Day Jesus Came to Town, and is taken from Luke 19, 28 through 40. Easter is a week away. Special Resurrection Sunday celebration is in store for you. If you join us at Calvary Baptist Church, we're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you have any questions about the church, you can find that out at calvaryfayetteville.com. Email us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com or call us at 479-442-4634. Now, our worship service begins at 1030. Again, we would love to see you there. Let me invite you to listen along today as Pastor Kurt shares. Well, we were made to worship the King. Perhaps this explains the fascination that people have with the very pageantry of royalty. When kings or queens go on parade to their coronation or to some grand event of state or to their final resting place in death, the world seems to stop and to focus and to watch the regal procession as it passes by. I realize we as a nation fought a war not to be under uh, kings and queens, but at the same time, uh, how can you not find fascination and be impressed by watching? Um, Maybe as Queen Elizabeth just a few months ago was taken to her final resting place and the pageantry and the people lining uh, the roadway. But to have been in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago on the day when the king of all kings came to town, when he rode into the holy city of God with everyone singing his praises, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That would have been a real event to experience. Wouldn't you agree? Now, ever since Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem at the end of Luke chapter 9, everything is advancing towards Jerusalem. It would not be the first time Jesus came to town, but it would be the final time that he came to town during the course of his life and ministry here on earth. All during his ministry, he had been very careful to shun the spotlight, to withdraw from all the accolades, to retire in secrecy, it seems, when advancement or recognition or applause came his way. It confused his disciples continually. Just when it seems like your ministry is ready to take off, and gain some real momentum and have a real following, Jesus would pull away. He would disappear through the crowd. He would head to some other part of the country. But not on this day that we will read about in just a moment. 
that we read about from Matthew's account to begin our service today. Not on this day. This time, Jesus welcomes the recognition, the praise, and the worship. No longer does he avoid the spotlight. He is ready for all Jerusalem, all Israel. And because it was the Passover celebration, all the world to know who he is and why he had come. His choice of timing was strategic. There was never another time that the city would be so filled with people from all over the world for him to reveal himself to. This last week of his life will not be spent avoiding the opposition and hiding from the public eye. But Jesus was not going up to Jerusalem for his coronation. He was going up to the city to die. It would be an eventful week, as evidenced by the amount of emphasis the gospel writers give it. Jesus lived 33 and a half years. The last three and a half years were his public ministry. And yet, concerning the life of Christ, Matthew devotes 30% of his gospel to one week, the final week of Jesus' life. Mark devotes 38% of his gospel to this last week. Luke devotes 24% of his gospel. And John, the beloved apostle, devotes almost 50% of his entire gospel to one week of Jesus' life. Today is the celebration of Palm Sunday and the beginning of that what's often called Holy Week. We celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. I want to talk to you about that today. I want us to try to imagine what it might have been like and what people were thinking and expecting from Jesus. Just the same as you have expectations from the Lord. I have expectations from the Lord. And oftentimes it seems that God doesn't come through for my expectations. That he has a different agenda altogether. And when we have misplaced expectations, sometimes we miss what God has for us. Hear these words. From Luke chapter 19, we begin reading in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. You'll hear that phrase quite often in Scripture, for Jerusalem is in the Judean hills. And when you go to Jerusalem from any direction, north, south, east, or west, you travel up. That's why you find in the book of Psalms, some identifiers for certain psalms that this is a psalm of ascent, that this psalm was a song that the people would sing as they made their way up to Jerusalem, up to the temple. 
Verse 29. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the word of the Lord. I love that. If we refuse to worship him, if we refuse to live up to our calling, to the very purpose of our lives, to be a worshiping people, God will cause even inanimate objects to lift praises. To his name. Why? He's the creator and the God of the universe. All the stars, all the planets, all the solar systems that we continue to discover new ones, it seems all the time, light years away, they sing his praises. Very interesting. This incident with this a young foal of a donkey, this young colt of a donkey. Of all the things we read in the Gospels, that incident is one of the few that you read about in all four Gospels. Now we could go ahead and take this little side journey and, and find a whole message in that, how Jesus had perfect knowledge, how he knew that there would be a colt waiting there tied up, how he knew that its owners would ask, what are you doing, that he gave them ahead of time the right response, that they would respond to that response. Keep in mind, Jesus is coming from Jericho, and he is making his way up the Jericho Road. I traveled that road on my very first time to Israel a number of years ago when it was still open. As of uh, many years ago now, it has been closed down. 
but it is a winding, curving, narrow, unpaved road off to uh, the north, to the right as you travel up to Jerusalem. There is a chasm that you almost cannot see the bottom of it. It's believed that somewhere in that area is where the ravens came and fed Elijah as he was hiding in the wilderness and having somewhat of a pity party. Jesus makes his way up this road. It was on this road where he healed blind Bartimaeus, a man that we don't even know his real name. Bartimaeus just means son of Timaeus. And he was a blind man healed by Jesus. And as you get closer, it's about a 15 or 20 mile journey. As you get closer to the top on the eastern side of that slope, you come to a little village named Bethpage. And just beyond it, a little bit larger village named, named Bethany. Jesus had spent a lot of time in Bethany because that's where Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus lived. Lazarus that Jesus had raised from the dead. And after you pass through Bethany, you come to the crest of what's known as the Mount of Olives or Olivet. And as you cross that crest, all of a sudden what opens up before you as you face westward towards the Mediterranean is the city of Jerusalem. And there you have the temple, the place where God would reside among his people in sight. And Jesus rode over that crest on this colt. And he rode down that hill, that winding, very steep hill, down past the olive groves to the bottom, the Kidron Valley, near to where there is a place called Gethsemane. And he would pass by that, and he would ride up the steep hill to the gates and to the wall of Jerusalem. And you still see the remains of the eastern gate that has been blocked up when Islam, when the Muslims took over the holy city, they stoned up and closed up the eastern gate. Why? Because the Bible says when Jesus comes again, he will pass through the eastern gate into the city. And their intention was to keep him out. Secret, it won't work. You still see a portion of the eastern gate and its arches and Jesus would pass through. And on this journey, as he passed down the hill, his disciples and others, a multitude, the Bible says, a great crowd of people, a number that could not be numbered was along the way. They heard Jesus was coming to town and they came out, some out of curiosity, some out of opposition, some out of perhaps considering, is this the Messiah? Others that believed with all their hearts that he was, all with expectations of why he was coming to town, and all of them missing it. So let's explore that a little bit more. The crowd. The crowd. It's people from everywhere. Keep in mind, as I've already mentioned, the city is bursting at the seams. 
with people, not only from around the city, not only from around the country, but around surrounding regions, from other countries, all from different places of the Roman Empire. They would make this pilgrimage. Scripture records in all four Gospels that there was a great crowd, a great throng of people. The Bible refers in the book of Luke later, a few chapters later, in chapter 23, that the daughters of Jerusalem were there. And I always wondered about that phrase until uh, one of those trips to Israel and talking with a guide who was from there. And he said that phrase, daughters of Jerusalem, refers to the surrounding villages and towns, places like Bethany, places like Bethlehem. Places like Bethpage, these surrounding villages, places like Emmaus, that these little villages, they are the daughters and known as the daughters of Jerusalem. But everybody was in Jerusalem. Why? Because of the impending Passover, one of the pilgrimage feasts that Jews are encouraged to make every year if you possibly can, but if you live far away and don't have the means to make at least one time in your lifetime. So there are those that had been there for previous Passovers. There are many who were there who had come from far away that this was the trip of a lifetime. Instead of taking a Mediterranean cruise, they went up to Jerusalem for this lifetime trip. All the hotels were full. All the Verbos were booked up. The Airbnbs were making a, a fortune. Anybody with an extra room could rent out part of their house because there would be somebody looking for a place to stay. For you see, when they came for Passover, they would also, if they possibly could, would also stay for the next 50 days until Pentecost. And understand that too has a very important lesson in the message of the gospel, right? Because we find the church being visited in power on that day and all of a sudden God's People are really on the move. This is the Feast of Passover. People were there from all over the world. What was their expectation? Those from around Jerusalem, around Israel, they would have heard of Jesus. They would know, uh, know of him. In this crowd are people that maybe even had seen a miracle in the past three years. There, there were people who had, who had heard, possibly heard him preach or teach. But there were other curious people from far away that maybe had never heard his name until they got to Jerusalem and they began to hear about this rabbi, this teacher that some was saying he was a prophet. And one of the things that was triggering a lot of that curiosity and a lot of that wonder was they were hearing the story about Lazarus. 
that this man had supposedly been raised from the dead. And it was such an undeniable fact that nobody was trying to disprove it, that the religious leaders were seeing so many people becoming followers of Jesus, or at least professing to be a disciple of Jesus, that they already had a plot in mind. If Jesus comes to town, we'll get him and murder him. And not only that, but we will murder Lazarus also. We'll nip this in the bud. So you had the crowd. Perhaps some had expectations of seeing some miracle to be done by Jesus. But here they were watching, turning out as he rode into town. But you also had what we might call, not the crowd, but the company. The company. Those who are followers of Jesus. Some who could even be considered friends of Jesus. Now, in this account, in Luke's account, it talks about a great crowd of disciples. But understand that, that it's one thing to be a disciple, and it's another thing to be a disciple. It's one thing to be a Christian. It's another thing to be a Christian. You won't find hardly one out of a busload that will deny that that they believe in Jesus. But who are the true believers? And here you would have many, no doubt, hangers-on, but you also have what is the the true company of Jesus, people from all walks of life because he had touched the poor as well as the wealthy. Now, specifically, the company would be the 12, right? The 12, what we know as apostles. But remember that even one of them walking down alongside that donkey and waving palm branches in the sky, even one of them was a traitor. Even one of them was trafficking with evil men and was going to betray Jesus in just a few days. But there would have been the 12 apostles, those specifically called by Jesus from different walks of life. At least four were fishermen. At least one was a tax collector. Boy, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Especially when you have another one named Simon the Zealot. And a zealot, did you know that many of them were sworn assassins? Simon possibly carried a long knife up his sleeve. He maybe had taken the lives of Romans. We don't know, at least that's where his sentiments were, and the one person they hated worse than anybody else was a tax collector because that was a Jew who worked for Rome. And so you had Simon the Zealot, and you also had Matthew the tax collector, and that made for some very interesting campfire discussions, don't you think? Interestingly enough, only one of those twelve came from a very prominent family, from a prominent part of the country, and probably was the wealthiest of all. His name was Judas Iscariot. Since he came from money, they made him the treasurer. So you had the company of the twelve. 
But along with the 12 also, there was a group of faithful women. They were not groupies. These were people, in some cases, a mother or two of some of these disciples. In another case, Mary Magdalene, a woman who had been delivered, who had, uh, had uh, many devils living within her. She was demon-possessed, and she had been cleansed. She had been saved. There were others who traveled along who helped meet the needs of not only the apostles, but also of others they would come in contact with. They ministered to people along the way. And then there were those in this company that had been the recipients of Christ healing. Perhaps Bartimaeus, who was no longer blind, had gone ahead and made the journey up from Jericho. No doubt Lazarus was there in the crowd, freshly raised from the dead. Perhaps Jairus and his daughter that had been dead but raised to life was there. Perhaps the demon-possessed man of Gadara had made the journey over the Sea of Galilee and was now among this group. There were so many that had been healed, raised from the dead, converted because of Jesus' ministry. Perhaps the disciples of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, who was now dead, perhaps they had transferred their ministry service over to Jesus, for John had said, he is the one, he is the one. So this crowd, is this, this company is making its way. And they are the ones who began to sing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why? Because they recognized what Zechariah had prophesied in Zechariah 9 was now coming true. It is as though this, this experience that Jesus indeed um, had engineered that they had not been party to understanding, all of a sudden now saw it. For Zechariah had said hundreds of years before, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river, that is the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. They knew that prophecy. They knew it by heart. They could quote it, and they could now see this is coming to pass. And they're crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as the company begins to sing that hymn, the crowd takes up the hymn and sings it as well. What they did not realize is that their expectation was somewhat misplaced. Because you see, that prophecy talks about his first coming, riding on a donkey, humble, on a colt. And then it talks about his second coming, how he will cut off the chariot and the war horse of the enemy and the battle bow, and he will speak peace to the nations. 
And his rule will be from sea to sea and from the Euphrates to all the earth. Understand, the first and second coming of the Messiah are sandwiched right there together and it caused them to misplace their expectations. For this company, these disciples are thinking it's finally going to take place. For years, we've seen him retreat when the religious leaders began to oppose him too greatly, not because he was fearful, not because he was afraid, not because his message wasn't sure, but because, as he would say, it is not yet my time. They had seen him in moments of great victory, as well as moments of frustration that caused confusion. They watched him walk on water. They saw that, even Judas. They saw him give sight to the blind, to raise up the crippled. They saw him feed a multitude, thousands of people with a little boy's sack lunch. They even took up the leftovers. They saw him raise the dead back to life again. They were there on that hillside when Lazarus, still wrapped in his burial cloths, and stinking of death, walked out of the tomb. They had seen all of that. They had heard him teach the crowds, where in John chapter 6, it would have seemed to be the perfect time to make his move on Jerusalem, where he had the crowds eating out of his hands. And they had heard him say, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you are not fit for the kingdom of heaven. No doubt Peter and others thought, why would he say something like that? That's a hard saying that people said. And the crowd suddenly began to disperse. It was not yet his time until Luke chapter 9 when he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And that's where we are in this story. They had a misplaced expectation. They were hoping for a demonstration of his omnipotent power. Perhaps they were hoping for a revolution of the peasant multitudes that would throw off Rome and would show the religious leaders that Jesus would establish his throne. No doubt their hearts were pounding, their palms were sweating, their minds were swirling. It's finally time. Our Messiah is going to prove himself. That is the company. So you have the crowd, you have the company, but most importantly, narrow in your focus, 
you have the Christ. The Christ. The one who is the Savior, the Son of God, the Redeemer of mankind. Center stage, he was the only one who knew what was going on as he headed towards Jerusalem. He is not only center stage of this scene, but he is the center of all creation. In Scripture, he is known by more than 260 names and titles. And this journey towards Jerusalem began back a few months before in chapter 9, where the Scripture says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He is the only one who knew the plan. They had made other efforts to enthrone him, but always he avoided it. But now he would avoid the attention and the praise no longer. What was his expectation? His expectation was to bear the sins of the world. That's why he was going to Jerusalem. His expectation was far different from that of the disciples or the multitude of the people who would welcome him to Jerusalem. He had already warned them. We read about it in the Gospels. Let me read to you just a few verses from Luke's account. In Luke chapter 9, verse 21, listen to these words. And Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Again, This is just for you guys. Saying, the Son of Man, that's Jesus referring to himself. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now let me ask you something. Does that sound like he's speaking in code? That's about as blunt and as straightforward as as he could say it. But here we gain some more insight a little bit later in Luke chapter 9. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. A little while later in Luke 18, listen to this. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. And they did not grasp what was said. It's very easy to look back over your shoulder 
and see a little more clearly than it is to look ahead, isn't it? Providence is understood by looking backwards, but we've got to live it by moving forwards. These men, later, the scripture is going to say, then they remembered what he said. What they did not grasp earlier on, because of their dullness of hearing, because of their focus on other things, we don't know why, because maybe God had just miraculously and in a supernatural way closed off their understanding. Whatever it was, what they did not see beforehand that was told them very straightforwardly, they didn't grasp until later. Jesus spoke to them clearly and specifically about what was to come, but they did not get the message. Their expectations were so far different from his. They only thought of glory. They only thought of power. They only thought of the kingdom to come. They did not perceive. They had a bold initiative to take over. They did not know that this was a Calvary road of surrender and suffering. Misunderstanding Jesus' journey to Jerusalem led his disciples to not only a misunderstanding of what was taking place. Follow me here now because here's the application and we'll finish. But it caused them to misunderstand what discipleship is all about. They not only misunderstood what Jesus was up to, they not only misunderstood the timing of him showing his power, they misunderstood what discipleship was all about. For Jesus had told them back in Luke 9, those verses that we read about his telling them about his death and his suffering, he explained that discipleship was this. He said, you must deny yourself Take up your cross and follow me daily. Only by losing your life will you find real life. Jesus is saying to his disciples, not only am I going to give up my life for the Father's plan, but if you follow me, you must do the same yourself. They missed the heart of Christ about people who did not know him or his saving power. On their way to Jerusalem, they entered one village belonging to the Samaritans who refused to receive him. Do you remember what James and John, the sons of thunder, wanted to do? They said, Lord, Do you want us to call down fire from heaven to punish these people? Jesus said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. You don't even understand how far your heart is from the Father's plan. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And later on in Luke, as they are progressing towards Jerusalem, Jesus said these confusing words. If anyone comes to me 
and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, is Jesus actually teaching you've got to hate people to follow him? No. It is the Jewish way of speaking that uses exaggeration to make a point. He's not saying that you have to hate your family to follow Jesus. It just means that you have to love Jesus so much that what he wants and what his plan is, that that comes ahead of even your affection of the closest in the world to you. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That means to follow Jesus, you've got to be willing to renounce your own plans, your own agenda, your own career ambitions, your own hobbies, everything in life. If necessary, if necessary, Abandon even your family to follow Jesus. And you've known people that have had to do that. And so have I, whose family would no longer walk with you as you walk towards Jesus. But you see, their misplaced expectations caused them to miss that. It caused them to miss that. They're going up for glory on their way. Even as Jesus in Luke chapter 9 is talking about his sufferings and even as Jesus is talking about bearing a cross and experiencing all of that, you find on the very heels the disciples are discussing which one of us will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Once we get up to Jerusalem, and he shows himself and his power and takes over and the kingdom is established. I wonder what our positions will be. And Jesus is talking about sacrifice. I'm thankful Jesus didn't take his throne that day. I'm thankful that he made a walk, a Calvary road to Jerusalem to suffer on a cross. And the reason I'm thankful for that is because had he established his kingdom that day, I would not be one of his disciples today and neither would you. He walked that road not only for those men and those people, he did it for us. The crowd, they were curious onlookers wanting to see some demonstration of, uh, demonstration of power or blessing. The company, they were expecting that this was going to be finally Jesus' ascension to the throne. Jesus was on his way to a cross. And that's what Palm Sunday means. You and I can look forward to a Palm Sunday in the future. Revelation chapter 7 talks about it. John said, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. He's seeing a Palm Sunday of which that first one 
was just a picture of a greater one. People from all tribes and people and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Well, that was the day Jesus came to town. Today, Jesus comes to your heart. To your heart. How do you welcome him? As a curious onlooker? As a disciple who has a whole expectation and desires of your own? Or as someone who has surrendered and bowed down and ready to follow him to the cross. Poet Malcolm Guide. This is recorded in or printed in your worship guide. Talks about Palm Sunday this way. Now to the gate of my Jerusalem. The seething holy city of my heart. The Savior comes. But will I welcome him? Oh, crowds of easy feelings make a start. They raise their hands, get caught up in the singing, and think the battle won. Too soon they'll find the challenge. The reversal he is bringing changes there too. I know what lies before the surface flourish that so quickly fades. self Interest, heart, fearful guardedness, the hardness of the heart, its barricades, and at the core, the dreadful emptiness of a perverted temple. Jesus, come break my resistance and make me your Father, thank you for the truth and the glory of Palm Sunday. Thank you that though everyone, including his closest followers, misunderstood the moment, they were a part of the redemption story, and so are we. Father, help us to grasp our moment where we live, what your expectations of us are. And I pray that for every person here, our hearts will be open to receive you, our Savior, our Redeemer. We pray this in your name. Amen. Our hearts desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. 
Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.